This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and this week we've got another message from our Acts of the Apostles series. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. I want to ask you a question as we get started here this morning okay now it's a bit of a heavier question and a question that i know probably doesn't apply to everybody watching especially if you're newer to the faith or just exploring faith or maybe even struggling with your faith a little bit and not entirely sure of what it is that you believe it's a question that it might not connect for you but it's an important question nonetheless especially if you are someone who would say that you are a follower of jesus that you wanna live your life for Christ, okay? Here's the question, it's this. It's would you be willing to die for your faith? That's it. Would you be willing to die for your faith? Like if push came to shove and you found yourself living in a situation where your life was in danger because of your faith, where for example, maybe you lived in Afghanistan where now, thanks to the Taliban, it's illegal to convert to Christianity, and the Christians that live there now live in fear of execution, as we talked about a few weeks ago. If you lived in Afghanistan, would you stand strong in your faith, in the face of that kind of pressure, ready to die because of your love for Jesus, or would you cave? and maybe lie about your faith or hide your faith or even renounce your faith in Christ in order to survive? If push came to shove, would you and would I be willing to die for our faith? It's a tough question to know how to answer, I know, because until you're in that situation, you can't really know for sure how you'd respond, right? Like think about the Apostle Peter, for example, when he was one of Jesus's disciples at the Last Supper and he, you know, was excited to pronounce before Christ that he was willing to go to prison for Jesus and to even die for Jesus, only to then deny even knowing Jesus three times less than 24 hours later as the rooster crowed. Like until you and I are faced with that actual choice. And until you and I are under that kind of pressure, it's hard to know for sure how we'd respond. So it's a hard question to know how to answer, isn't it? But but a question worth reflecting on nonetheless, as, as thinking about how committed we actually are to Jesus and how committed we actually are to our faith is always a good exercise. For me, one of the first times I remember thinking about this kind of question was as a kid when this particular missionary would visit and speak at our church, the church that I grew up in uh, as a kid. He he visited every few years or so when he was on furlough. He's one of the missionaries that the uh, church I was a part of supported. He was a missionary in China where what he do was smuggle Bibles into the country and then travel around to different villages and distribute those Bibles to people and, to, and share the gospel with him, which was actually a very risky thing to do since it was and still is, I believe, illegal to bring Bibles and religious literature that hasn't been approved by the state into the country. And so I, I remember him speaking at our church Uh, once as a kid where he talked about what could happen to him if ever he was caught, where at the very least, you know, he'd be thrown into a Chinese prison 
for an indefinite period of time where anything could happen to him, right? Torture, beatings, solitary confinement, and the whole deal. Or at the very worst, he could actually face execution for what it was that he was doing. And I remember as he shared and as he told stories about how he had almost been caught, but how God protected him and things like this, I remember thinking, you know, could I do that? Like, would I have the courage to do what he's doing, knowing that I could be imprisoned and possibly even killed for doing what he's doing? I wasn't so sure. And to be honest, I'm still not so sure today. It's a tough calling. And then more recently, as I've connected a bit with our pastor, missionary friend in Ukraine, a friend named Paul, who many of you know and have met as well, as I've connected with him over the past month or so and heard him talk about how he's choosing to stay in Ukraine in order to serve as fellow Ukrainians and those who are fleeing the war and how he's choosing to welcome in refugees to his home and his church and how he's choosing even to travel into war zones in order to bring humanitarian uh, relief aid and things like this and to pull people out of those um, those war zones and bring them into safety, how he's choosing to do these kinds of things because of his faith, his faith in Christ, his love for God and love for people. As I've listened to him and thought about his story and example, I've found myself again asking this same question, that question being, could I do that? And would I do that? Would I have the courage to risk it all, to lay it all on the line in order to serve and to love the people that, uh, that he is serving there in Ukraine, all because of his faith? I don't know if I could do that. I'd hope I could do that, but honestly, I don't know if I could do what he's doing. Even a few weeks ago, honestly, as I preached uh, in this series on Acts about persecution, and I showed this picture from 2015 of the 21 Coptic Christians who were beheaded and martyred for their faith by ISIS on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea in Libya as they refused to renounce their faith in Christ. As I prepped for that message and as I looked at that picture, I wondered again, could I do that? Would I stand strong in my faith if I had a machete on my neck like this? Or would I, like Peter, crumble under the pressure and deny my love for Christ as I begged for mercy instead. I don't know what I'd do. I, I'd hope I'd stand strong. I hope I'd be faithful to Jesus. And I, and I hope and trust that the Holy Spirit would give me everything I need in that moment to get through it. But it's a pretty intense situation to think about, isn't it? And I'm not entirely sure how I'd respond. So how about you. If push came to shove, would you be willing to die for your faith? Well, I ask that question here this morning, not because I'm trying to freak anyone out or make anyone feel guilty or something, because maybe you're not entirely sure that you could answer uh, yes to that question, at least if you're being honest. But I, I ask it because I think it helps to put us in the headspace of the story that we're looking at here this morning in the book of Acts. That story, of course, being the story of Stephen, Christianity's very first martyr, the very first person from the church, the first Christian to be killed for his faith. Where after giving the, the longest speech or the longest sermon, if you will, recorded in the book of Acts, he is stoned to death because of what he said 
in it. It's an incredible story, a challenging story, and a story that I think forces us to ask the question, could I do that? Could I, would I stand strong in my faith as Stephen stood strong in his faith, even in the face of death? So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open them with me to Acts chapter 6. We're starting in verse 8 of chapter 6 and following all the way through to the end of chapter 7. We find this story, the story of Stephen. And we're not going to be able to read every verse and look at every verse here in this passage this morning as we work our way through this story. It's just too long. There's actually 68 verses that make up this story. So we can't look at every verse, but I do want to look with you at some of the major themes and ideas that come out of it as together we place ourselves in this story and ask ourselves the question, could I do that? And would I be willing to die for my faith as Stephen died for his? Like, how committed to Jesus am I actually? So with all that in mind, let's look together at some of this story. We're starting in Acts 6, verse 8. We read this. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. I love that. He performed amazing miracles and signs and wonders among the people. Now, some of you might remember that we actually met Stephen in our last passage here in Acts. We're at the beginning of Acts chapter 6. We see him being appointed to a leadership role along with six other Greek-speaking Jewish men as together they were tasked with the responsibility of leading the church's food distribution program, which freed up the apostles to focus in on preaching and teaching and prayer instead, making him, making Stephen an important and influential leader in the church church, even though he wasn't actually an an apostle. He was a man that Luke describes, Luke being the author of Acts. uh, He was a man that Luke describes as being full of God's grace and power, which is an amazing description, isn't it? I'd love for that to be said of me and to be said of us together, uh, as well as a community of faith, that we are full of God's grace and power. It's an incredible description. Reading on, Verse 9, but one day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. Uh, These Jewish men, they started to debate theology with him. But, verse 10, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Now, wouldn't you love if that could be said about you? You know, like I, I tried to convince Michael. I tried to convince Noah or I tried to convince Crystal about X, Y, and Z, but I just couldn't stand against their wisdom and their spirit with which they spoke. They're just too smart, too quick, too sharp, too in tune with the spirit of God. Imagine that being said about you. It'd be a great compliment, wouldn't it? And you'd probably win every argument and debate that you found yourself in. It'd be a great superpower (laughs) to have if you ask me. But that's how Luke describes Stephen here for us. A man full of wisdom and full of the spirit, a top-notch thinker and leader in the church, a man who could win every debate. And so what did his opponents do then here in Acts 6 when they couldn't win the debate? How did they respond? Well, they, they did what a lot of sore losers 
do. They started a smear campaign against him and began uh, to sling mud in his direction. Look at verse 11 where we see that starting to happen. So they persuaded some men, meaning they probably bribed some men, to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. Or in other words, we heard him speak against our nation and our religion. Two things that you do not want to mess with here in Jewish, ancient Jewish culture. Verse 12, this roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council or the Sanhedrin, the, the same religious council, the same leaders, religious leaders who had been threatening the apostles previously with violence if they did not stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. We've looked at some of those examples in weeks past. This case got dragged before these same men, a very scary bunch. Look now at verse 13. The lying witnesses said, This man, Stephen, is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us, which ultimately were the two things, really, that united Israel as a nation. Number one, the temple, where the Jewish people believed that God's presence dwelt. And number two, the law of Moses, or the Torah, which makes up the first five books of the Bible and is the main way, was the main way that it was believed that God spoke to people and gave them his instruction. Nothing was more precious and more sacred to the Jewish people than the temple and the law. And so these lying witnesses, they knew that by misrepresenting some of what Stephen had actually said about these two issues, that Stephen ultimately could be executed for it. Just as Jesus was, by the way, as much of what he said about these same two issues, about the temple and the law of Moses, it was some of what led to his crucifixion. And so these lying witnesses and the people who had bribed them to lie on their behalf, they knew full well what this could mean for Stephen as death was the punishment for blasphemy, which was exactly what they hoped would happen to Stephen here, that he'd be killed for his teaching. But you know what's interesting here? It's that it didn't really seem to bother Stephen all that much, even though he knew, he had to know uh, how this could end for him, that it could end with him being executed. As to look at him and to look at his demeanor and his countenance, you didn't see any stress in him whatsoever. Look at how Luke describes Stephen's demeanor, his countenance here in this moment as he was being accused before the Sanhedrin. Verse 15, at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. It's amazing, isn't it? Like, I wonder, does your face shine like an angel's face when you're being falsely accused of things? Because mine sure doesn't. If anything, it probably gets beat red and my eyes look like they're about to pop out of my face, but not Stephen. According to Luke here in Acts 6, verse 15, Stephen's face was as shining bright as an angel's face in the midst of all these accusations. Now, 
what's going on here in this passage with Stephen's face. Well, interestingly, this is almost exactly the same thing that happened to Moses and to his face when he came down from the mountain, from Mount Sinai with the law in Exodus 34. If you know the story where after having encountered the presence of God on the top of Mount Sinai, his face shone so bright. He was so radiant and so filled with the presence of God that he needed to put a veil over it, over his face, so that people could look at him and not go blind. That's the same kind of thing that's happening here to Stephen as his face shone brightly uh, with the presence of God, as brightly as an angel's face, which you'd think might have been a tip or a sign or a signal to the high council that God's blessing and favor was resting upon Stephen and his message here, just as it had on Moses's. But in their hardness of heart, they missed it. They didn't connect those dots and they didn't realize what it was that God was trying to say to them about Stephen and, and his message in this moment, which is really interesting, isn't it? It shows us that God's giving them a chance here. That God's giving them a chance to repent and to hear the message. But in their stubbornness and hardness of heart, they just aren't able. They weren't able to see it. Kind of like us sometimes, right? When God tries to speak to us and call us back to himself, sometimes we miss it in our stubbornness and hardness of heart, unfortunately. We're reading on now. Luke tells us in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest asked Stephen this question. He asked him, are these accusations true? Like, did you actually say the kinds of things that they're saying you said about the temple and the law? Where after having missed the symbolism, this signal with the shining face, they now want to hear directly from Stephen. They want to hear an explanation of what it was that he was actually saying. And guess what? An explanation he did give as over the next 51 verses in what is the longest sermon or the longest speech recorded in the book of Acts, Stephen lays it all out for them, telling them the story of Israel and of the temple and the law and then connecting it to the story of Jesus, showing them just how seriously he took the scriptures and how seriously he took the temple and the law and that ultimately it was them who was missing it because they were missing Jesus who was and is the very fulfillment of those things. It's an amazing speech that Stephen gives here. We don't have time to look at all of it as it's quite long. It's 51 verses, as I mentioned. If you want to give it a read on your own and maybe study it on your own time, I'd certainly encourage you to do that. But I do want to highlight what I understand to be his main points in this message as best as I can for you here today. Now, remember that everything that Stephen says here in this speech, it's in direct response to the question, are these accusations about what you said about the temple and the law of Moses, are they true? And so for as much as what he says seems to be random a little bit and all over the places, he jumps back in history and tells some of the story of Israel's most revered leaders from history. He talks about people like Abraham and Joseph and Moses and King David and King Solomon. It feels kind of random and all over the place. It might seem like a random history lesson, but it's not actually random at all as what he's doing here ultimately is connecting their story, the story of Israel, to the story of Jesus. And he's showing them how all of scripture and the entire law and the reality of the temple, it all points to Jesus, the Messiah. 
the one who he says in verse 52 of chapter 7 that they betrayed and murdered. That's really Stephen's main point in this speech. It's that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the temple and the law in the Old Testament was trying to accomplish. That where the temple attempted to limit God's presence to a space and place that only a select few could access and where the law of Moses essentially blocked certain people from knowing God because of all of its rules and regulations, where, where both the temple and the law fell short. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the Messiah or the righteous one, as Stephen calls him in verse 52, he filled the gap. That's Stephen's main point in this speech here, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the temple and the law was trying to accomplish and that they had missed it. Where just as they had missed and rejected the point of the story of Abraham, as Stephen explains in verses 2 through to 8, and just as they had missed and rejected the point of the story of Joseph, as he talks about in verses 9 through to 19, and just as they had missed and rejected the point of the story of their main man, Joseph, who God gave the law to, as Stephen unpacks for them at length in verses 17 through to 43. And finally, just as they had missed and rejected the point of the story of King David and of King Solomon, who ultimately built the temple, as Stephen explains in verses 44 through to 50, so they had missed and rejected Jesus, God in the flesh, the Messiah, the righteous one, the one who came down from heaven to earth to do what the temple and the law and ultimately what religion could not do, and that is to save and to rescue sinners and to bring us close to the heart of God, reconciling us to the Father. Now then, look with all that in mind. That's a, a lot of verses crammed into just a few minutes, but with all that in mind, look now at how Stephen ends his speech after having said all those kinds of things that I just mentioned here. Look at what he says, his zinger of a line or several lines to the Sanhedrin as he wraps up his sermon in verse 51, starting in verse 51, where he says this. He says, you stubborn, stiff-necked people, <laughs> he says, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Ouch. Must you resist the Holy Spirit, forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did as they didn't see what God was doing through Abraham and Moses and others. And so do you. You're doing it too. Name one prophet your ancestors did not persecute. Everyone who's come speaking truth for God, you persecuted. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and you murdered. Verse 53, you deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Or in other words, you are just like your fathers and those who have come before you, looking to religion to save you while resisting the work of the Holy Spirit, even going so far as to persecute and to murder those who spoke for God, namely God himself, God in the flesh, Jesus the Messiah, even though all of the scriptures and the, the, the whole story of the temple and the Mosaic law, it all points to Jesus. But you, you refuse to see it and deliberately disobey God's law instead. That's basically what Stephen said to these powerful men. Men who could and ultimately did have him executed. Like imagine the kind of courage it would take to do that. 
to speak that kind of truth to that kind of power when you know that that power will probably kill you for it. It's crazy courage, isn't it? To me, it's the, the same kind of courage that that missionary had uh, when I was a kid that came to our church, that missionary from China. It's the same kind of courage that we're seeing in people like Paul in Ukraine as he, as he serves his country, men and women who are fleeing war. And it's the same kind of courage that those 21 Coptic Christians had as they had machetes pressed up against their neck. It's, it's courage that comes from God. And from God alone, as the Holy Spirit filled them, filled Stephen and filled all these other examples I just gave with supernatural boldness and courage to stand strong in the face of death. It's courage that comes from the Spirit of God, the same Holy Spirit who longs to fill us with his boldness and courage. We're reading on, look at how the Sanhedrin responded to Stephen's courage where, hint, they were not very happy with what it was that he had said. Verse 54, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation as they were ultimately the ones who had been disobeying God's law. That's what Stephen had said to them. And they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit and full of the courage that the Holy Spirit gives, he gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. What would that have looked like? And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Oh my goodness, what is this? And he told them, look, I see heavens, the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. That is so amazing, isn't it? That as Stephen stood for Jesus before these men, as he stood strong for Jesus, he saw Jesus standing for him before the Father. It's incredible the imagery we're seeing here. Verse 57, then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting because they didn't want to hear any more of it. And they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yes, that Saul, the same Saul who later became known as Paul and ended up writing more than half or just about half of the New Testament. We're going to be hearing from, more, uh, from him later on in the story of Acts. But look now at how this story ends in verse 59. It's amazing what we see here. Verse 59, as they stoned him, which, by the way, would be a terrible way to die, wouldn't it? To have big rocks and stones thrown at you till you died. Just horrible. As they stoned him, Jesus prayed. Listen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died and went to be with Jesus. Now, who's this remind you of? Who else released his spirit right before he died and asked God to forgive those who killed him, saying that they don't know or they don't understand what they're doing? It was Jesus, right? As Jesus hung on the cross for the sins of the world after having been falsely accused of blasphemy for speaking out against religion, just as Stephen had been here. And after having been betrayed for money, as Stephen had kind of been betrayed for money here as well as these lying witnesses had been bribed and paid to do so. And after having stood on trial before the Sanhedrin, who were the same men that Stephen 
stood before in Acts 7. Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, the, the righteous one, as Stephen calls him here in this passage, he uttered very similar words as Stephen did here before he breathed his last breath, showing us, I think, just how precious Stephen's life was to God and how dependent Stephen was on the life and the spirit of Jesus at work in him as the spirit of Jesus gave him the courage he needed and the words to say in that moment, even as he faced death, just as Jesus faced death too, which I think is pretty amazing. You know, earlier in my message, I asked you the question, if you'd be willing to die for your faith, that if push came to shove and you found yourself in a situation where your life was in danger because of your faith in Christ, would you be able to stand? Would you be willing to give it all up for Jesus, just like Stephen did here in Acts 7, and just as those 21 Coptic Christians did back in 2015, and just as so many other martyrs have done throughout history? Would you be willing to die for your faith in Christ? And it's a tough question to answer, I know, but here's the thing that I think made it possible for Stephen. Here's the thing that I believe Stephen knew deep within his soul and that gave him the ability to stand strong in courage, even in the face of death. Here's what Stephen knew. It was not that Jesus wanted or needed or required Stephen to die for him, but that Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, had already died for Stephen. That's what Stephen knew deep within his soul. Not that Stephen had to give it all up for Jesus out of a desire to be a religious hero or something, but that Jesus had already given it all up for him on the cross so that he could be forgiven and healed and made whole. And therefore, in response to what Jesus had already done for him, and in an act of courageous love and worship and radical commitment to Jesus, Stephen laid it all down for him as well by standing strong for Jesus, even as he faced death because of Jesus. Because that's what happens in a life that knows, that truly knows what Jesus has done for them. That's what happens in our lives when we know what Jesus has done for us. We lay it all down for him in response. We lay down our life and our hopes and our dreams for the future. We lay down our money and our stuff and our time. We lay it all down for him, not out of a sense of religious obligation or duty as the Jewish uh, leaders in this passage had done trying to please God by, you know, believing all the right things and following all the rules and the Mosaic law and so on, but in response to what Jesus has already done for us on the cross. Us laying our life down, us surrendering our life to Jesus is all in response to Jesus' laying down his life for us. When we know that, when we get it, when we understand what Jesus has done for us, we can't help but surrender it all back to him in response. And so as we wrap up and reflect on this story, this incredible story, the story of Stephen together, I wonder do you know? Do you truly know and understand what it is that Jesus has done for you already on the cross? Because Stephen did. And he tried to explain it to the high council here in Acts 7. And guess what? They killed him for it. 
but it's a truth that changes everything. When you know it, it changes everything for you and it leads us to live a life of courage where we are ready to lay it all down for Jesus, no matter, no matter the cost. Because we know that Jesus laid it all down for us. Jesus laid it all down for you, by the way. So what's he calling you to lay down for him in return? That, that's the question. What is Jesus asking you to lay down for him? You know, we, we sometimes, yeah, that question, are we willing to lay it all down for Jesus? Are we willing to die for Jesus? It's a good question, important question. But how about maybe just the next thing that Jesus is asking you to surrender to him? Maybe just the little thing. Maybe it's, it's your money. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's forgiving someone. What is Jesus asking you to lay down for him in response to what he's done for you? Do those little things, those little steps. Don't think so much about your life, laying down your life for Jesus. Think about the next thing he's inviting you to lay down for him. And eventually as you do that, you become the kind of person as Stephen was, who's willing to lay it all down for him. What's the next thing? that Jesus is asking you to surrender to him. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we want to be people who live in response to what it is that you've done for us, not out of a place of religious obligation or duty where we think we have to earn your love or earn your favor, earn your forgiveness by doing certain things, by behaving a certain way, by praying a certain way, by going to church or believing certain things, whatever it is, God. We want to live in response to your grace and your mercy, to what it is that you've done on the cross for us. Just as I believe Stephen did here. He knew what it was that you had done for him. And so he was willing to lay it all down in return for you. And so I pray for everybody who's listening here this morning, who's watching. God, would you speak to us about that next thing that we're to lay down? Not to look at Stephen's example and say, I could never do that. I could never, you know, be stoned to death for my faith in Christ. Or I could, I could never have a machete to my neck like those Coptic Christians and not give up, not renounce my faith. Or I could never do what Paul in Ukraine is doing or what that missionary in China is doing. Help us not to look to just crazy ideals, big, big stories and scenarios, but just to look at our daily lives and say, what's the next thing that Jesus is asking me to surrender knowing that as we are faithful to surrender the next thing over and over and over again, we become over time the kind of people that Stephen, the kind of person that Stephen was, people who are willing to lay it all down. So God, would you speak to us about that next thing, about surrender? But first, would you speak to us about what it is that you've done for us? Remind us of the cross. Remind us of what you've accomplished for us by going to the cross on our behalf so that we can be forgiven, restored, made new, made whole in Christ, reconciled to the Father. Let us stand in awe again of what, in what, uh, what it is that you did for us and then live in response to that as we surrender our life, our time, our money, our talents, everything that you've given to us, one thing at a time to you. Make us faithful to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We're back next week with more of our Acts of the Apostles series. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringottawa.com, and tune in next week to the Gathering Ottawa's message podcast. <laughs>